Well, good morning. Happy post-Thanksgiving. If you don't know me, my name is Melinda Reed, and I am part of the teaching team here at High Point, and I'm excited to be here today and sharing God's Word. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I'm filling in um, for Kevin today. Greg and I just came back from a week in Arizona to celebrate his 60th birthday last week and my pending birthday this week with our kids in Arizona, thinking that we were going to be sweating and laying by the pool getting a tan, and it was a little bit milder than we expected. But the kids gave us a great celebration, and because I didn't want to disappoint you, I've got a couple pictures to show you because I wouldn't want you to miss out. See, they we went to Top Golf of all places, you know, because I'm such the golfer, but it was super fun. They celebrated us, and we had a great time, and we did a little picture um, time that... Um, Bob, show them those four gorgeous grandkids because, you know, there you go. Oh, are they not awesome? I mean, that's what I got to do all week, except all but one of them had either a snotty nose, a cough, a fever, something. And they did it all in Mimi's face all week. So the fact that I'm not sick today is pretty awesome. I'm excited to be here and to share God's message. We're not going to do a Thanksgiving message today. We're going to continue in the book of Romans with chapter 5. Would you pray with me? me before we start. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the richness of this text and the inspiration and the way you wrote it through Paul. God, would you just guide my words today? I pray that there would be nothing that I would say that did not originate from you. And Father, I pray that we would engage with your scripture in the way that it is alive and that it would change our hearts and our lives even in these moments today. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Um, In 2009, my brother Mike, uh, my oldest brother, who at that time was a deputy chief of police, spoke at, um, I have to read this because I always forget it, the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference in Denver, Colorado. He was a keynote speaker. This is where thousands of law enforcement officers come together to learn. And he was one of the keynote speakers. And I worked with my sister-in-law to surprise him right before his talk. Our dad had passed the year before, and I just really wanted to support him. He was there serving on a panel and addressing wrongful convictions, mainly those that involved DNA that had not been collected from years ago or um, the... um, identification by picture lineups. They were doing um, some assessment on that. And he served on a a panel through the Innocence Project. And there were three on the panel. Um, There was Thomas, who was the alleged um, perpetrator. And there was Debbie, who was the victim. And then my brother, who was the detective at the time. And they all sat on a panel together and told their story, which is fascinating in itself. They weren't escorted in from different places so they wouldn't be um, at odds with one another. They came in together. They actually had formed a friendship, which was fascinating to be, and you'll think so as you hear the story. In 1985, Debbie, the victim, was violently raped and robbed at knife point. And you see, at that time, there was no DNA. There wasn't all the things that we have now. And she was working, she, she reported the case. And my brother was the, depu- was the detective at the time. It was 
early in his police career as a detective. And him and Debbie, he, he just had a heart for her. Well, she picked Thomas out of a photo lineup, and he was sentenced and convicted to burglary, burglary and sexual assault and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. Fast forward 23 years. In 2008, DNA evidence exonerated Thomas. And Debbie had to face the fact that she had sent an innocent man to prison for 20 plus years. It gives me chills just thinking about what she was going through. At that time, the real rapist had not been found. And by the time he was, unfortunately for her, the statute of limitations had expired. But before they got on this panel, I got to walk with Thomas and Debbie throughout the convention, and Thomas shared his story with me so graciously. I I said, Thomas, I'm astounded that you aren't angry, that you don't feel resentful. And he said, well, you see, Melinda, I found Jesus in prison. He said, and to be honest with you, Melinda, I probably would have ended up there anyway. I mean, how incredible that someone would be astute enough to even admit that. And as I walked with him, I was just overtaken by the way justice and mercy and grace had invaded the story. So when they got up to share the stage, it was hard. My brother aired the system's shortcomings and some of his mistakes. Debbie spoke of her worst nightmare, and Thomas spoke of losing, at that time, really half of his life in prison. It was the picture of justice and grace. And I couldn't have been more prouder as a, as a sister, but also as a friend to these other two. You see, the day Thomas was declared free, he was justified. The wrong was made right. Innocence be, became, came from guilt. Reason prevailed, and the truth was unveiled by way of DNA. And you say, what does that have to do with anything with Romans 5? Well, Romans 5, we're revisiting justification that Kevin talked about a couple of weeks ago. And Paul um, dials down on it more, and it's very much about justification. So much like Thomas experienced that day. I want, as we look at this text, for you to look at it through Thomas's eyes. Maybe even take a step and look at it through Debbie's eyes. But let that frame what we're going through. And what we're going to talk about today in Romans 5 is Paul is kind of giving the why and the what of justification. Up to this point, Paul's focus has been on the power of the gospel to put the people that were locked up in sin or those Pharisees that were locked up in the law to be justified, to become in a right relationship with God. Winning the spiritual lottery is how Kevin spoke about it a couple of weeks ago. But now Paul turns his attention to what comes after justification. What does justification really mean? Well, you know, as I studied, commentators say that this is the, one of the hardest texts in the Bibles. Bible. And I was like, thank you, Kevin. That's awesome. The the difficulty is not so much about the idea. It's a lot about how Paul says it, and you're going to understand that as we get going through it. But just remember that to to be justified, to experience justification, is to be declared righteous, to be made right. It's an act of God that pronounces a sinner righteous, a prisoner free. 
It gives us a new beginning. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in, in him we would become the righteousness of God. That's not just forgiveness. That is becoming the holiness, the righteousness of God. So just like Thomas, we've all committed a crime. We all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And just as he was handed down his consequence, so were you and I. But through surrender and salvation, he comes to the, God comes down from the bench, he acquits us, and he justifies us. And Paul is going to dial that down for us. So if you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and we're just going to dig in. It's a lot of text. It's a lot of truth. But I'm going to do my very best to try to shed light on this scripture for you. So open up your church app. The notes are already in there that you can follow along or open your Bibles and read with me in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that afflictions produces endurance, endurance produces character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For in, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received his reconciliation through him. Like I said, a lot of words, a lot of text, and so much richness. Chapter 4 last week, Kevin talked about Abraham. He talked about that he was credited to righteousness. But the good news is, at the end of chapter 4, it's not just for Abraham. It's not just for the chosen. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everyone. That's why Paul starts chapter 5 with, therefore. Because we have this opportunity to be declared righteous, he reveals what justification brings. And so these first 11 verses are kind of the what is justification. And if you're taking notes, the first, the first thing that he kind of pulls out of here is that justification provides peace with God. He says this, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace or the shalom, is the objective state of harmony with God when we are justified and made right with him. We experience the peace of God, but we also experience the peace with God. What's the difference? Well, the peace of God is this, that inner sense that we have. Like when we say we have peace, that, that's with, it's, it's inside. There's a sense of calmness, of peace. But our peace with God is that we've been made right with him. There's no more hostility between us. And we can only enjoy the peace of God when we've established peace with God. Because until we're reconciled with him, we can't have that inner peace. 
This is harder because it's two-sided. We are complete in Christ. When we are justified and, and experience salvation, we are complete in Christ. But at the same time, we're growing in Christ because we're still sinners. So it's kind of hard because we're both, we are becoming at the same time as we are. We have a status of kings at the same time as a status of slaves. We have a status of the presence of God that we get to experience, but at the same time, there's the presence of sin. We enjoy that peace that comes by being made right with God, even at the same time as facing our problems. Do you see where Paul is addressing that peace? 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. It's saying peace is happening because of the sacrifice of the cross. We don't make peace with God. He made peace for us on the cross. Does that make sense? The peace of God and with God. And secondly, justification brings access by faith. In verse 2, he says, we've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. Our access to grace comes only through faith. God's grace is always there. It doesn't go anywhere. Even when we're not feeling it, when we're not experiencing it, God's grace doesn't go anywhere. It's when we act on it in faith. We take that step of faith to experience the charis, the, 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 the grace, that unmerited favor. Galatians 3.24 says, The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. The law was, but now Christ is. And as we were condemned on account, as Adam was, we're justified through faith because of what Christ did. This whole chapter is about comparing Adam and Christ, which we're going to get to in a moment, but how we actually experience justification. You see, God's judgment followed one sin, Adam's one sin, but it covered Many, 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 many trespasses to come. The secular mind, if I'm doing the math, I would think lots of sin would mean what? Lots of sacrifice. But his one sacrifice covered the many sins. It's a different kind of arithmetic. It's called grace. And we experience it in different ways. This could be a whole message in itself about experiencing the grace of God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the last part of the chapter. The third thing that he, when he's talking about what justification is, is that it helps us rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Now comes some of the most recited part of chapter 5 is these verses 3 through 5 when we talk about all the, the afflictions and it's producing um, perseverance, which produces character, which gives us hope. And we like to quote those because that makes us feel better, especially when we're going through something hard. But sometimes giving God glory or rejoicing in our sufferings, I don't know about you, but that's not always my first response. Some think that this verse means that we need to pretend to be happy and joyous when we're going through a conflict. Some, the prosperity gospel would tell you, you would need to say that you're not even going through it at all. But Paul's not saying that you need to put on your happy face and say, oh, I'm just fine. I'm just fine. All is good. 
We not, Jesus didn't pretend when he suffered and hurt. He didn't pretend he was his real self, and we should be too. Paul is not suggesting that we rejoice in them, but we rejoice for them. Now, what's the difference? I'm not happy about a hard situation, but I can look if we are walking with Jesus, we can look through the situation to what God might bring out of it. Does that make sense? That's why we can rejoice when we have troubles. God doesn't like us to have troubles. He doesn't enjoy seeing us in pain, but he can see the big picture and what, is, what he is producing in us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can look through our suffering and we rest on the knowledge. And the longer that we walk with God, we know that those troubles are going to bring something good in us. The longer we walk with God, we know that God has a purpose and that, that rejoicing, that looking through suffering gets a little bit easier. And suffering brings just a few things. Suffering is a path to glory. I would say it is the strongest path to God's glory. You can, if you look at the, at the pillars of this book, they got closer to the glory of God through their suffering. Think of Paul. What would his ministry have been like if it had been easy peasy for him? I would say that we wouldn't have some of the words that we stand on today. As Paul later expresses in chapter 8, we are co-heirs with Christ. So we need to share in his sufferings. How should we expect to not suffer when Christ suffered the ultimate? Romans 8, 17, 18, Kevin's going to get to this in a few weeks. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be what? Glorified with him. 2 Corinthians 4, 10, Paul writing again to the church of Corinth. And, he, and when he's talking about, you may be familiar with this, chapter when he's talking about the cracked pots you know that we're all have this treasure in jars of clay he says in chapter in verse 10 we always carry around the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body through my personal struggles that verse I have stood on that Melinda who am I to say I can't carry around suffering Christ himself has invited us into his suffering, not for the sake of suffering, not in a martyr kind of way, but with a purpose. So suffering is a path to glory. It is also can be a tool for growth. And I said can be because that's our choice. We can choose to grow through suffering or we can choose to be bitter and angry. Thomas probably had moments, and he shared some of those with me in those 23 years. He had some dark places, some moments when he was angry, when he was bitter, but he was able to suffer because of his relationship with Jesus, and it was a tool for him. We cannot learn endurance without suffering. It's like wanting to be a professional athlete without doing the work or maybe having a little bit of talent. That helps too. We often don't want to do the work that it takes in suffering. We want endurance. We want closeness with God. We want strength, but we don't want to do the work that it takes to get there. And suffering can do that. It can cause us to grow, and it breeds hope. And lastly, suffering is the optimum place that we can be assured of God's love. If you look back in your life, however, if you've been alive 15 years or 115 years, when you look back, the time that you felt closest to God, I would offer you those are the times that you were hurting. Now, sometimes it's in those joyous moments, 
But it's when we feel the steadfast love of God is when we are at the end of ourselves. Amen? It's when we are at the end of who we are. And we can be sure of his love because he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. And he's given us the gift of Jesus. And that assures us of his love. That's why people often, people that have intense hardships, have a greater level and capacity of joy. Have you ever noticed that? Often people that are suffering or maybe even at the end of their life, they have this bigger capacity for joy. We rejoice in suffering not because we like pain, we, we can pretend that, but it's not because we like pain, but it's because God is using that to develop character in us. It's like the difference between a rookie and a veteran. There's just, there's something that's developed. It's the difference between being 15 and 105. There's development that happens. The road to spiritual maturity is paved with struggle. Ask Joseph in the Bible, and he's going to point you to the Egyptian prison. Ask Moses, and he's going to point to the other side of the wilderness. Ask Daniel, and he'll be pointing down to the lion's den. Ask David, and he'll point to his run from Saul. Ask any believer that has traveled very far with Jesus, and they will tell you that his blessings are often poured with a bitter cup. This is a whole message in itself. But the, just get this, that the, there is purpose in suffering, there's development in suffering, and the ultimate is that it points to hope. So, it, so justification provides peace, access to grace, it, it helps us suffer, and lastly, before we move on, justification offers reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Verse 8, I mean, how amazing is this? While we were still helpless, sorry, this is verse 6, while we were still sinners, my version says, while we were still helpless. So here's the reconciliation that he offers us. It is not after you get your act together, after you get straight A's, after you get the right job, after you behave well, be, be, learn all the books of the Bible. It was while we were still helpless. While we were yet sinners, that's when we can be reconciled with God because it has nothing to do with our merit. It has nothing to do with our effort, but everything about what he has to offer to us. Justification speaks to our legal status, that we are right before God, but reconciliation describes that repaired relationship that we now have when we receive that gift of grace. Thomas was justified in the eyes of the law after that DNA was surfaced and he was exonerated. But he would tell you, he told me, not in these words, but the real justification happened, the real reconciliation happened in the prison cell when he found Jesus. And I believe that that's the reason why he could sit by his accuser and embrace her, that he could sit next to my brother who was part of putting him away and help tell the story so it wouldn't happen again. That, my friends, is grace. 2 Corinthians 2.16 says, Know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There's so much more to the what of justification. 
That was kind of a fast forward of the first 11 verses. But we have to go on to the why of justification, which is what Paul talks about in the remaining, the remaining verses. So read with me from verse 12. He shifts here. Therefore, again, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is now changed to a person charged to a person's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgressions. He is a prototype of the coming one. This is where he first is comparing Adam to Christ. But the gift is not the trespass, for if by the one man's trespasses many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, and the gift is not because from one sin came one judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Was that crazy writing or what? Yeah. So then, as through one trespass, there is a condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification. He says the condemnation, but also justification. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many were made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why this is called the most difficult text. And this chunk right here is a very debated scripture because Paul kind of changes his cadence. He gets rather wordy here. It reminds me of like the end of chapter seven where he's saying, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I, what I want to do. He just, it, it gets a little confusing, but I want to unpack it a little bit and talk about the why of justification because what he's doing is he's taking it back to Adam. He's saying, let me make it simple for you. What happened is sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and their disobedience. Then all the world, death entered the world through that sin. Then death came to all men because of that sin. Do you see the progression? It starts with Adam and it ends up with all of us. And he's saying, let's go back. It has nothing to do with all the things. Think how this rocked the world of the lawgivers of this day who were holding on to the law and holding on that they were descendants of Abraham and they're going, what is he talking about? He's leveling the ground because if we go back to Adam, we're all from Adam. It doesn't matter if we're a Gentile or a Jew or a Washingtonian or a Texan. Or, it doesn't matter because we all came from Adam. Paul reminds us of that journey. The truth got lost, and he's saying, I want to clear it up for you. So he takes them back to the basics with the comparisons of Christ to Adam. Over the centuries, you know, many people have compared um, to who came before them. Maybe in your family, you look like your mom or your dad or your grandpa or your grandma. Um, the descend people have influenced your life, even that aren't related to you. If you think of Billy Graham, and the way he influenced and impacted thousands of people, the presidents, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Adolf Hitler, 
I mean, think about the people that have had this influence. But what Paul is saying is there is no one that has had more influence in our life than Adam because he gave us the death sentence from his decision, his and and Eve's, sorry, I'm not going to give Eve a break, their decision in the garden. In verses 12, um, where he talks about, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, death spread to all men. So I want to give you just a few points, and I, and I want to try to take an overview look, kind of looking over this passage so it doesn't feel so hard. So just there's three things I want you to think about. The first one is, if you're in Adam, he's, just, he's saying make a choice. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. So if you're in Adam, you're under the reign of death. He's just making it clear. He, he, he lists a, quite a list of why. When Adam fell, the entire race fell, and his guilt and condemnation spread to everyone. Romans 3 reminds us of this in verse 10. No one is righteous, no, not one. If you, if you fast forward to verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't argue that we don't look like Adam in that way. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Does that make sense? It's because we have a propensity, we have it in our blood, in our DNA to sin. How Paul's words must have shaken those Jews. I just can't even imagine how they might have received this word like, wait a minute, are you reading that letter right? Can we stop for a minute? What is going on? Every son and daughter of Adam is guilty, condemned, put away longer than two death life sentences like Thomas had. John Piper says this, the deepest reason why death death reigns over all is not because of our individual sins, but because of Adam's sins imputed to us. So the deepest reason eternal life reigns is not because of our individual deeds of righteousness or being good or any of that, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed by the grace of God. Through our faith. You see that parallel? This shed light on why Paul even embarked on this, on this paragraph at all. I'm thinking, whoa, Paul, why here? Why like this? Well, he wanted, but remember Kevin talked about how the Gentiles, you know, had really kind of restarted things and now the Jews were outsiders. And Paul is feeling this need that I need to level the ground and remind everybody where we come from. And it's not based on the law. It's not based on our lineage lineage or our heritage. It's based on Christ. So you're either, if you choose you're an Adam, you are in death. But through Christ, number two, through Christ we reign in life because Christ's gift is greater than Adam's sin. And if you get anything out of this message, remember that. Christ's gift, his sacrifice for us will always forever be greater than Adam's sin even though Adam's sin's impact had a ripple effect for all of eternity Paul is showing us why Christ is far superior to Adam think of in three different or five or six different times in verses 15 through 17 he uses the word grace and a couple times he says much more has the grace much more. He's accentuating that Adam's sin resulted in condemnation, but Christ's obedience on the cross produced justification. Christ's righteousness credited to our account 
for anything that Adam had done. That's why you have to see that greater than, or what, sorry, I'm doing it the wrong way, the greater than sign. And you know, God doesn't just forgive our sins. He doesn't just save us from jail and pull us, get us free. We experience the righteousness of God and we're guaranteed eternal life. That's such a better deal than Thomas got because it has an eternal value. Philip Yancey says this, the world thirsts for grace. When grace descends, the world falls silent before it. We all long for grace. We long for, for, we sing about it. We talk about it. We long for grace. Um, this week, spending, spending a week with four kids, six and under, is an adventure in its own self. But I will tell you that there were moments that grace was asked for instead of consequence. And let me just tell you what that might happen. Like, let's just say maybe, hypothetically, someone was kicking the soccer ball in the house. I mean, just hypothetically. Kicking it too high, you know, we're in a VRBO, things are breakable. Mimi may or may not have said, please don't kick the ball in the house. And when they're caught or not caught or hiding, um, there's this decision. Is there penance? Is there punishment? Or is there grace? Well, if they ask me, well, they're going to get grace every time, every single time. That is the beautiful thing about being a grandparent. Just go ask your mom. Um, I, I got to, I, I, I actually, because I was working on this message this week, I kind of thought about that as they were pleading their cases various times during the week of just like, oh, can you imagine how a million times more that is for God? Can you imagine how much more he wants to give us all the things and for us to experience grace? And Paul is trying to say, look at the comparison here. What in the world would you do differently? If we're in Adam, we're in death. Through Christ, we reign. And, and, and lastly, we are condemned as sinners through Adam's sin but we're justified through the righteousness of Christ. Verse 18 says, So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, but through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. Everyone. Later in Romans 8.1, he says, Therefore there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We are redeemed. We're justified. We're set free. The law was added simply to help people see their sinfulness and guide them to God. Kevin talked about this a few weeks back. The law wasn't for something for us to just get in place and follow. It was to guide us to him. The transaction that Christ did on the cross trumps anything that happened before. That is the heart of the gospel. There is nothing in our world that works this way. There's no education system, sports, economics, business, military. There is nowhere else that this happens. You always have to perform before the verdict happens. But here, it happens first. The verdict happens first. That's the gospel. That's grace. And if you're sitting here today or you're watching online and you haven't taken that step, you don't even really understand what justification is, this is the gospel. The price that Christ paid is greater than anything that you or I could ever, ever do. 
In Adam, there is sin. In Christ, there is righteousness. Death versus eternal life. Judgment versus deliverance. The law versus grace. If you're in Adam, you are under the reign of death. If you are in Christ, you will reign in life because Christ's gift is greater than Adam's sin. So will you stand justified and reconciled with Christ? Where do you stand there? Imagine Thomas sitting in his jail cell. Just imagine that. Week after week, year after year, possibly, probably asking God, why? Why me? This is so unfair. Can you even wrap your head around being in a prison for 23 years for something that you didn't do? After he came a believer, it was still a really long time on our standards. Wouldn't we think, well, we came to Christ. Wouldn't this be fixed before 23 years? But yet, the glory went to God. So like Thomas, sometimes life isn't fair for us either. It might not look like this. But we experience the consequences of our own actions or we experience the results of the fallen world that we live on. But God didn't leave us alone with that injustice. He didn't leave us stranded like Thomas was. He is the equity, the redeemer, the savior we need. He's the justification and the reconciliation. But it's only in him. I want to invite the band up, and I've got a few things that I want you to think about this week. How has God used suffering to reveal his love for you? And if so, have you responded in sharing it in his glory, or have you pulled back in bitterness and pity? Another question I want you to think about is, how have you experienced justification and reconciliation, and how might these truths need to be reinforced? In other words, is there... Is there something that's kind of leaking that maybe needs attention? Then I want you to thank, we're still thanking God because we're starting Advent today. So thank God for three ways you've experienced grace multiplied. Like just that overflow that Paul talks about of grace. And lastly, if, if you're watching or here today and you have not chosen that, I invite you to take a step to write it on your connect card to find myself or somebody here on the staff to talk to today. Don't let another day go by. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the price you paid that God's, we, it's, we often forget the depth and height of it. Forgive us if we ever take that lightly, the greatness of your sacrifice versus that was greater than any sin. God, as we worship you and, and, and sing about that, could it be, God, from our heart and from our soul, giving you all the glory. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.